Well, good afternoon to you. This is Alan Seymour, your host here on the Future of Sport, all in sports talk. And wow, this is now episode 19. Delighted to do, uh, today to introduce uh, Chris Eaton, uh, who is a specialist consultant in all things sports integrity. Uh, and clearly that's such a broad, generic subject area. But I'm sure in our interview today, Chris will give us some of the interesting and some of the more enlightening aspects on how uh, governance, how ethics, and particularly the notion of integrity plays an ever-increasing role in sports. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about your career and how important sports integrity is to you. Well, in fact, Alan, I, I came to sport integrity and sport very late. Uh, I'm a career policeman. I joined the police at the age of 17 a long time ago. <laughs> tell you how long ago. In, in Australia... And uh, ultimately, in the 1999, I ended up in Lyon, France. And in fact, I'm still living in Lyon, France, so it shows how much I fell in love with the, uh, the French uh, culture, the French countryside. But in fact, uh, I, uh, I was with Interpol uh, until I joined FIFA in 2010. I joined FIFA in 2010 completely out of the blue. I was, if you like, headhunted uh, with the recommendation of the then head of Interpol to who were looking for someone to support them in the World Cup, uh, leading up to the World Cup in South Africa. Uh, South Africa, if you may recall, in 2010, uh, there was a lot of controversy about the, the notion of uh, public safety uh, for the fans and for the players, in fact, in South Africa. And the uh, lead-up uh, matches, uh, the competitions, the under-17s and the under-20s, were conducted also in, in Africa, one in Egypt and one in uh, in uh, Nigeria, and uh, both of them had a call, also lots of media speculation, particularly in the UK and Europe, uh, about the safety of young players and, and then the, the senior players in South Africa. So that's the very broad background of why I was headhunted, because they, they needed someone who had some contact with, uh, with law enforcement in Africa who could facilitate uh, a better coordination, if you like, between the various national agencies that were supporting the uh, Junior World Cups and the World Cup in South Africa. So I joined in 2010, early March 2010, uh, for the purpose of, uh, of supporting the security aspects of the World Cup in, uh, in South Africa. Uh, and uh, ultimately, of course, uh, the issue of matchmaking became kind of very uh, paramount to me during the World Cup in South Africa. People may not recall, but there was matches fixed before the South African World Cup, and uh, they came to my attention partially anyway during the World Cup itself. So my functions, my interests, shifted largely into integrity during the World Cup in South Africa. That's an interesting, fascinating, and I believe, and, and I'm glad you've kind of given that broad introduction Obviously, uh, your early career in policing and, and, and obviously that aspect. Do you think, let me put a question to you, do you think the sporting bodies see sport as outside almost, if I can use that framework, of everything to do with what policing or criminality or, or the law of the land and some of those issues? Because it strikes me sometimes, without getting into too much of the legalities almost or the sensitivities almost, but do you think there is enough 
uh, belief and attention really from governance particularly to make sure that sport ultimately is rid of any potential or active criminal activity. Is that a fair question to ask you, Chris? Absolutely a fair question to answer. The answer, I think, is, uh, is almost obvious. Sport left this alone. They ignored it. There's such a low priority integrity. Integrity in the field of play, I mean. Yeah. Uh, let alone integrity in the, uh, in the governance of their organisations. These were priority number Z. Priority mm-hmm. one was always business. Priority two was autonomy. This mistaken belief in a legal sense that sport was autonomous from uh, government uh, regulation and government interference. Now, in fact, there are, there are some arguments that government uh, uh, interference and government uh, regulation should be in some way removed from the, its impact on sport, but in some way, certainly not in the rule of law. In the rule of law, the rule of law applies to whoever you are. You know, private companies are autonomous from government too. Banks are autonomous from government too, until such time as they break the law, until such time as they break regulations. Sport never understood they felt they were in this marvellous position of, uh, of calling their shots in a global context because we are the global organisation, there's no global government. We can do very much as we please to protect our business and to protect our sport. Now, these were mistaken, and I believe uh, the emphasis was completely wrong, and that's why sport is in its problems today. It paid no attention. To, uh, to integrity the field of play, virtually no attention anyway, and now uh, certainly very little attention to the, uh, to the uh, corruption aspects of, uh, of governance. And that's why sport is in such a perilous state today internationally. I mean, Chris, um, totally concur, totally agree. I'm just really... I knew I would be, but I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged, and obviously I hope my listeners and people that clearly are, you know, where this, I mean, it impacts everybody. I think what you've said, the rule of law applies to everybody. But I think what is also important is that I'm not always sure that the message either gets through or there's enough people, you know, uh, really not only persuading but influencing and having the debate about it. So anything that can be done to uh, ultimately uh, increase and encourage some or all of this premise. Let me just touch upon a couple of the things that you've introduced here. I love this phrase because, you know, I'll, I'll make come on to it a little bit later in the interview, off the field and on the field, you know, because obviously in sports performance, if you like, or the things that happen, I mean, obviously on the field of play, you touched upon match fixing, for example. But in a broader consideration, you know, this belief that win at all costs you know, we see players diving, if I can use that, or cheating on the field of play. But, but, but that ultimately, I believe, is kind of endemic as well, where you can continue this off the field of play, and then that leads to a lot of other, obviously, some of those issues that you've raised. Is it a cultural thing, do you think, or is it a, a kind of thing that happens always across the world. I'm going to touch upon your connections with FIFA maybe in a minute because I think this kind of global bubble that lots of the people lived in or they lived in a bubble because, you know, they believed that they were the the, the authorities in all things global sport, which clearly isn't the case. But maybe just touch upon some of those maybe cultural considerations, if at all there is any, probably there isn't, but some of the things that you think are endemically wrong in people's 
perceptions and attitudes in sport, Chris? Well, Alan, I think you've summarised it yourself, but let me repeat it. It's undoubtedly a cultural problem. Undoubtedly. And I think it's a and the culture of sport has evolved without any form of values that we would hold dear in the sense of the original uh, uh, creation of most organised sport. sport. Sport was created based on values. It was created based on the base, on, the, on the, the very foundation. It was about developing human beings, kids in the first instance, and yep. adults in the second, to show them how to play in teams, how to play well, how to accept the feet, how to, how to be magnanimous in, uh, in victory, uh, how to be uh, uh, gracious in, in competition. And you still see some sports that, that try to grasp the last levels of all these values. I think rugby union is one. I think cricket, well, up until recently, <laughs> yes. oh, yeah. I, I, think, I think there are very few sports today that, that grasp those values in any way significantly. That sports have become essentially business driven. They are driven by success and win at all costs. Uh, and it's, it really has created a values vacuum which has now permeated not only the field of play but the, uh, uh, the administration and governance of sport themselves. They felt unaccountable. You know, cheating, you talk about diving, we can talk about biking, we can talk about all those, those aspects and all codes that are about uh, taking advantage, an unfair cheating advantage. They are endemic in sport today. To such a point where you have to have uh, video cameras and surveillance of third umpires, fourth umpires, fourth officials to, to try and catch the subtleties of cheating. But the mere aspect of cheating is itself a cultural abnormality. How dare sport reduce itself to these very basic attitudes that were so far from its original inspiration that it actually shocks people like me and the vast majority of people who really are the, the, the last vestiges of sport fans. Chris, I, you know, it's almost, and I don't often say this to my audience, you know, it's often I think, well, I'm going to say it now, let's stand back, let's pause, if only we could rewind the tape, but certainly let's pause, because those words you've used in this interview today on the public record almost, to all my people out there who genuinely and absolutely passionately, what you've said, this is an audio, this isn't visual, but if we could almost see the visuality between me and you here, Chris, this epitomises it, you know, the words you've used, magnanimous, respect, we grew up with the tradition of sport was, you know, sport was centred on values, we need to return to this, you know, and we can see, you know, um, I'm very sensitive here or very mindful of using sporting, uh, so using all kinds of metaphors, you know. People are holding on here in the UK at the moment to success at all costs. Let me leave it at that. And in some ways, you know, that can go across the political spectrum, the social spectrum, the business spectrum. And clearly, it, you know, it's happening in sports. Let's kind of move the interview on a little bit, a little bit, if we may, Chris. Let me ask you a very direct question here. What did FIFA get wrong, in your opinion? Because clearly, I think some of the issues that you've already raised in the interview, you know, this autonomy, this we can do anything that we want... 
maybe ultimately doing that not only cost them both their reputation today and some of the people involved in it, but maybe that ultimately, if you like, is the model, the recipe for the disasters that have faced them now that you will always get found out and maybe some of the things that you've learnt in your time in working with FIFA, Chris? Well, look, look Alan, FIFA was seduced by money. Simple. Uh, it, it became a greed-based organisation. Okay. Uh, and the culture of money and cash in football is, throughout the world is frightening. I see uh, referees being paid in cash in the field of play in South America. I see players being paid in cash in the field of play in Central America, for instance. Uh, the, the cash transactions for people who promote matches, international friendlies, uh, inter- international club friendlies, international league friendlies, and they're paid for, the, the venues and, the, uh, and the, the associations are paid for in cash. Now, this cash economy, we know what they're doing it for. They're doing it to avoid tax because they're moving across borders and they're taking back their cash. This, this, in business context, might make sense. It makes no sense in the sport values context. You should never be dealing in sport in a cash economy. It's always about accountability. It's always about the responsibility you have to the rule of law and the rule of taxation, or two for that matter. Yes. Now, this might seem like a small thing, but it starts from there. It starts from the easy familiarity with the movement of cash right to the billions of dollars that, uh, that people were receiving for the, for the World Cup. Only one event was paid was valuable and uh, profitable for the uh, for FIFA, and that's the World Cup, the, the seniors' World Cup. All the others cost them money. Okay. Now, I, I saw, for instance, during my time at FIFA, I only had two years old at FIFA, I, mean, I couldn't stomach my time with two years, in reality. Uh, at the, uh, the uh, major congresses, the amount of cash that was paid to the delegates, the delegates coming from some obscure nations that don't even have a... Uh, any profile in football, and they might have 10 delegates each being paid these massive daily allowances uh, and uh, compensation for lost luggage, very frequently lost luggage, quite amazing that, uh, and they were getting $5,000 in cash for lost luggage or something like that. Uh, and they're walking away with uh, their rooms paid for and their in-ring meal paid for, but with a, with a pocket full of cash. And this creates almost like a bonanza feeling right. in the sport. Everyone thinks, hey, uh, a treasure trove here is FIFA. Uh, and half the officials, or the, sorry, the, the, the administrators that I saw at congresses, uh, at FIFA congresses, were not prior footballers, were not involved in sport themselves. You could tell by their physicality that they weren't sport people. Uh, they were quite uh, overweight in many cases, stupid old. It had become such a club of, of elite uh, administrators that had no connection to the field of the game. In terms of, can I kind of flip it, maybe, turn it over a bit? Because, you know, Phoenix out of the ashes, there's got to be a problem before you can resolve it, turn it round. Do you think that there now uh, are some examples of positives that have come out of, obviously, some of these uh, poor behaviours and all of the things that have gone with um, you know the, uh, the 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 sentiment that anybody in sport can take out of it what they want, and I'm thinking particularly now of bidding perhaps for new events 
for more global considerations where, you know, we need to emphasise and accentuate all the positive things. In your mind, as an expert here or someone who spent a great deal of time seeing all the bad that's emerged and investigated, if you like, can you see some light at the end of the tunnel? Can you see some hope for the future? Can you perhaps give some recent examples of where authorities or institutions or organisations are definitely seeing the benefits and actually uh, fulfilling the role of good governance in sport, Chris? Yeah. International sport is vital to society. It's vital to people, not only for health purposes, but again, this values transference, this, this, this notion that children grow up learning, uh, children of both genders, uh, of all colours, all stripes, all, all levels of income, can, can have something where they join that teaches them about life and how to, uh, to uh, enjoy the, the companionship of colleagues and the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, all those things that we talk about. Absolutely. It's, it's so important, so important to society. Uh, in, in my view, sport is still trying to hang on to the old regime. Okay. The, the, the old regime, which is individual sports, joined together in clubs, running very much in a clubby type atmosphere, but ultimately being responsible for a massive big business uh, and growing businesses worldwide. Uh, and I think that you need to have, uh, what is missing here, is a complete separation of powers. I don't mean independence. This is this word independent, the integrity aspects, independent tribunals. Quite frankly, you can see from what Infantino has done that independence counts as it. Uh, he was able, at the stroke of a pen and one meeting, with his nice, compliant Congress, to rid himself of troublesome priests. They're all gone because they could cause him concern. So FIFA has simply gone back to the future. I don't think FIFA is, uh, has improved markedly. It's improved at the edges. Okay. The edges will not work. It will not work. It must go to the centrality of the separation of powers, which is why I say things that the Europeans hate. I believe the European model, model is inferior to the American model of sport governance. In my view, the American model, which has, of course, the openly de declaration that sport is a business, you have franchises, you buy clubs and sell clubs, you buy wires and sell clubs at, at, at will and openly on the market. And, and you attest to the fact the owners of clubs are business people who operate them as businesses. Now, this is happening slowly in football as well around the world, but American, all American sports operate on this model. Then they have the commissioner. The commissioner is the person who is responsible to keep the values of the sport alive and to make sure that sport is... Uh, is uh, in perpetuity in the future, known for its respect of values. Now, we do not have an equivalent of commissioner in the European model. It's supposed to be the president, I suppose. Yeah. But presidents have become very much part of the general management of sport governance in Europe, and therefore they have been, they have been their role and their, their function in protecting the values of their sports has diminished enormously. They have become very much like Sepp Blatter have become. The, the chief administrator of, uh, of FIFA. Uh, now, that's not what the uh, the commissioner model in the US does. The US model uh, at least has some separation of those powers. And I believe it's very important that sport governments has this separation between the, the, the protection of values, the protection of the culture from the business of the sport. And that is not uh, complete enough. 
I mean, Chris, uh, <clears throat> I don't in any shape or form, and I very rarely on my show come out with a, a, a kind of direct comment or supportive comment or against a comment, but I totally and utterly agree that separation of powers has to be seen and it has to be done and it has to be affected. The balance between the European model per se or the American model per se, I think is a fascinating one. I think it's a very, very important one. And if I may, you know, maybe just touching, touching upon that. I mean, one of the things you said earlier in the interview about, you know, sports, rugby particularly, having good values, maybe cricket, maybe less so, yeah, because of obvious examples of the cheating or match-fixing aspects that have come out in that particular sport. But golf is another sport sports quite close to me where you know you are you know you control your actions you rule there is a a, a commonality if i can use that phrase in there there where integrity is everything you know when you mark your card and, and all of those things and if we could carry that through where we had that approach through the governance models or whatever then I think, obviously, that would return us to and take us forward more importantly than return us to, uh, you know, the key values. I believe there's a commissioner, for example, in America, in MLS and, 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 and in Major League Soccer, football. I watch my Twitter feed, as I know you do. In fact, it's probably the way we came together originally, Chris. And a lot of my people, and maybe a lot of people over in America, would say where you have... Uh, MLS, no, uh, no promotion, no relegation, and it's out of the behest almost of the commissioner. It's actually ruining the potential for the sport to grow globally in a business sense. But maybe the comment that you made in your comments a few moments ago, in perpetuity and keeping sport going and upholding independently, if that's the right phrase, or certainly upholding uh, the values of, of, of sport, and in this case soccer, is the way forward. Do you have a view on how ultimately this kind of commissioner role or having somebody in that position can get the balance right, maybe, between some of those issues that I've raised? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think MLS is the poorest US example. Okay, fine. I, 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 I don't think that the, uh, the uh, MLS commissioner has any of the, the authority or the, uh, the, the profile okay. to say the uh, MLB these are major league baseball okay. a very strong commissioner these, these have to be high profile people uh, who have uh, virtually no property in the sport itself but they have property in the values of the sport I mean these, these people do exist ok fine and I we've seen that I, I think that uh, certainly it is, it is not easy to balance between the business uh, dynamic uh, and imperative and the, uh, the protection of values, the protection yeah. of the sport for the future, particularly in a global environment where we have a, a competition, not against real sport. We have uh, the e-sports, for instance, virtual sports, for example, uh, and we're seeing uh, these uh, mind games, uh, poker and, uh, and other forms of mind game taking significant uh, fan bases uh, in the future. Uh, I think a very interesting thing I read only a couple of days ago was an American study on the average age uh, of uh, the average fan for each sport and we're seeing some of those traditional sports, the elevation of the age in the 60s, yep. to be a concern for those sports, that they are, they are not capturing the younger audiences that will uh, sustain them into the, uh, into the 220s and 230s. 
So I think that sport, physical sport, let's call it physical real sport, has a, an absolute challenge in this modern day and age uh, to, uh, to preserve itself and its, uh, its position in society, its importance in society, in both a business sense and a value sense. In my view, if you only pay attention to the one, the other will suffer. There has to be this fine balance. And that's the role of the commissioner. Yeah. The role of the commissioner is to, is to finally balance, and that's why they have to be sophisticated people who have a lot of, uh, of background or at least knowledge of, uh, of business internationally and knowledge of, uh, of values internationally too. These people exist. They're in big business all through the world today. It's simply a way of, of making sure that sport is protected the same way as some of the, the major corporations and the major uh, uh, products are in the world, such as banking, are protected today. You know, this, this tension between the regulator uh, and the business is a natural one and one that should be maintained. Chris, I mean, I'm so encouraged. And if, you know, I often talk to my students and when I'm giving lectures and various other things, you know, you're not going to agree with everything. You're not maybe going to be able to comprehend or even follow some of the things. If you can take away one thing, stick to that and use that and think about that. And I think the point that you've just made, it's not an easy playing field if we can use a sporting metaphor here you know the balance between business and values and business and participation in the relative sports but there are people out there who can play this role of properly separating the powers and, and have this uh, you know they have no real stake or value in the property maybe but they're in a good position to give that uh, reputation and to give that integrity going forward to protect the sport so it can continue to progress. So we're going to come to some closing in a minute, but I do want to continue, Chris. I had a whole raft of questions here that no doubt we can uh, continue in other uh, in, in other ways in, in in a future interview or some of the other things that perhaps we can link to do in the future. I have. A real irritation here in the UK at the moment. I did want to ask, not a provocative question, but I wanted to ask something to find a, a person who's had some of the, uh, well, not some, has clearly had all the experiences that you have. One of the things that I think is, is, is a total, almost uh, aberration of sports business in many ways, hanging on to something. And it's very prevalent, I'm sure it's very prevalent in, in many places, but it seems to be more prevalent than ever in the UK. Social media's played a massive part. Visibility, accountability, you know, essentially almost uh, indoctrinating people out there. And every time there is a sports event here in the UK, on commercial broadcasting, it's followed by what can broadly be termed a betting advertisement. And it is now so pronounced. And it's no coincidence that high-profile examples, to my mind, of, of how betting can ultimately lead to some of the problems that you've talked about already, that are clearly evident as examples of how cheating and how some of the things that go wrong in sport happens, you know, and maybe the cash-rich thing, maybe the fact that now a lot of betting companies use the opportunity uh, through the revolution that's happened with social media apps and so many other things. 
and sport it's an easy option I would suggest quite often for lots of sports organisations or sports considerations to take that betting money or oh, sorry to take that advertisement money from betting companies is there a way it can be regulated should it be considered to be regulated is it happening in, a, in an unreal or an untoward way in a personal opinion I suppose Chris from your consideration what are your views on some of those things well, Alan, I have been very uh, in detail examining the sport betting market for the last uh, seven years because I very quickly realised from, uh, from uh, my experience in South Africa that sport betting was the source of the money that paid for match fixing, in, in most cases anyway, uh, and paid for the criminality that was surrounding sport, the, the threats that surrounded hotels when players arrived and the people that were befriending uh, players in... Uh, in discotheques and other social environments, uh, these criminals were paid by, by betting fraud money. So my policing days experience showed me and told me that you follow the money. Where does the money come from? You know, sport itself, sport governance went its own way and virtually ignored sport betting for, uh, for decades as sport betting almost globally exploded uh, in, uh, in all regions, Europe, America, Southeast Asia, and now Africa, we're seeing sport, sport betting become bigger uh, financially, and in some cases bigger in fandom than sport itself. Sport is simply the vehicle for these guys to grow. The major problem globally is that the vast majority of sport betting is illegal in the black. Yep. Therefore, there's no regulation, there's no tracking. There's no identification of the, the big whale gamblers that are clearly behind most of the, uh, of the, uh, the malfeasance that occurs in sport. So uh, the, the fact is that uh, the, the only answer, you are not going to prohibit it, the Americans ought to learn their lesson with alcohol. When you prohibit something that is very popular in society, you end up shoving it straight into the illegal market, okay. into the black, into the darkness. And, and that created an absolute growing environment for organised crime in America. The Americans are suffering today still from organised crime that was gestated in the 20s because of prohibition. You cannot prohibit gambling. You legalise it and you regulate it very strongly. Gambling is money transparency. These things are all done by algorithm today. We're not talking about uh, you know, uh, risk bookmakers anymore, risk-taking bookmakers. They are very rare. Today, it's all done by, uh, by, uh, by algorithm to balance off the, uh, the betting one side against the betting the other side and to take their percentage off the top. Yeah. The fact is that, uh, that I think that, uh, that uh, sport betting globally needs to have some attention paid to it by uh, collective governments, either through the OECD or through another UN-type agency. OECD makes a lot more sense than others because of economic development. Uh, and the OECD was the first one that created, for instance, the Financial Action Task Force to control banking around the world. We're talking about trillions of dollars now that course through these uh, these illegal bookmakers and the great bookmakers in places like the Philippines that are underregulated. The only place where sport betting is properly regulated, strongly regulated, is Europe. Most of the UK is a standout example and a very good one, for instance. Uh, uh, the Americas are quite good in terms of the United States of America. But in uh, Central America, South America, Africa, uh, in, uh, in the of arts of Southeast Asia, these are very casually regulated, under-regulated. 
problem. Now, it's a different issue to sport. You know, it's a kid to sport because it's the, the impact is felt by sport. Absolutely. Uh, so sport ought to have a voice in this. Sport, instead of signing up to sport betting uh, companies, ought to first be saying to governments and sport betting companies, sport betting companies, get your act right first, and then we'll sign up to you. Once you prove to us that you're protecting our sports, you're protecting our sport uh, athletes, you're protecting our officials, then we will sign up to you. But only when you show you do that, and they're not doing that enough now. Chris, I mean, we've got to finish, sadly, now, but in many ways, without patronising anybody in this whole issue, I think that's a wonderful landing place, you know. You need, we all need to work together, and we'll sign up with you if you can assure us that you're going to protect the values, the athletes, everything concerned with sport, not only, obviously, clearly, in this instance, if we were using that as a business, but for the greater good of what sport is, and that sport is a societal thing, and as we started today, it's for next generations, it's for kids growing up, it's for those who, like me and you, feel so strongly about sport in all its glory, and I think that's just a wonderful way of summarising. I'm going to just ask you one last question, if I may, Chris, and then as a summary to finish today, tell my audience how they can contact you or anyone who's interested in any, and I'm sure there are lots and lots of people interested out there in some of the issues we've discussed today and maybe some of the broader issues. If you were given as it were, you know, carte blanche, a blank cheque, the power to influence totally. What do you think is key to ensuring going forward that sports governance is, is clearly taken very seriously and what may be needed a lot, lot more to ensure that we can rid or at least partially uh, make inroads into the things from an integrity perspective influence badly some of the things that happen in sport yeah well Alan the first thing sport needs is a collective body that's really representative and democratic okay and it's not the IOC which is a very undemocratic elitist organisation uh, and doesn't have sufficient authority or empowerment uh, to, uh, to administer the sports that are its members either and the fact is that sports need to realise they have common problems all sports physical sports and even the, the e-sports and the, uh, the virtual sports have common problems here. That there are people who want to cheat and make money off them. There are people who are prepared to, uh, to, to uh, corrupt them and corrupt their officials and corrupt their administrators for the purpose of, uh, of, of corrupt income. So this means, in my view, that the, the, the common uh, issues, the common uh, values that uh, we hold here in integrity need to be protected in a very common way too. Uh, and it's, as I say, the IOC tries its best within its, uh, its very limited fit and its very limited uh, uh, democratic process. I mean, they, they do not elect, uh, they select. And uh, when you select rather than elect, you're not democratic, I'm sorry. And, uh, and they don't, as they represent all sports either. So we need something like Sport Accord. Sport Accord is a failed model uh, because it, 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 uh, it tried too much to uh, cater to the uh, Olympic sports and the non-Olympic yeah. sports Limelight, and, and poor old uh, Meryl's visor stepped on his own landmine when he uh, when he told the Thomas Barton New Home Truths. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he suffered the penalty for it. Although I see that the judo's back on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps he's been rewarded for being quiet. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but what, what I want to see, what I'd love to see if I had uh, my, uh, my own way here, is a 
Australians have fought first and foremost, uh, that, that had a, an independent uh, authority to, uh, to, to examine and to draw into account, particularly in compliance terms, uh, sports uh, requirements to look after themselves and to report matters of concern to the proper authorities rather than to keep them secret and hide them in their own, uh, in yeah. their own machinery. You know, I think that, uh, that societies that are looking for a global uh, body that to some extent emulates the American sporting model, a global commission of some kind across sports. Now, this does not have to be a high-profile model. It, it has to be in such a way that sport feels confidence in it, sport bodies feel confidence, sport fans feel confidence in it, and that it creates that, that natural transparency and, uh, and, uh, and the independence of, uh, of overview and oversight, the sort of uh, model that we, we think is necessary against all individual sports ought to be applied collectively uh, for sports also. Chris, we're going to finish a global, a new global sports body that stands for something that people can look up to. It's an ideal, some might say it's an unreal and, 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 and something that we could never actually achieve. But the desire and the wish to strive for it is something that I totally believe in and I kind of ultimately would join any party or any group of people who would debate it more clearly but, but perhaps would subscribe to that and aspire to that going forward. Chris Eaton... Great interview today, one of the best I've done, not simply because the topic area I think sometimes is one that's not hidden, but sometimes people are a little bit uh, uncertain how much to say or how much to discuss it. It needs debate. Like all things that create or have created problems, you've got to delve and you've got to be critical and you've got to actually appraise it all. So many, many thanks for the time today and interview. How can some of my audience make contact with you, Chris? Have you got uh, an email perhaps or a social media handle that people can get in touch with you? <laughs> Chris, I can assure not only you from a personal one-to-one, -one, it's been great talking to you today, but to anybody out there, a guy like Chris who spent a lifetime in all the interests and all the considerations that have come out in today's interview has to be a gentleman because sport and the values of sport always ensure that that happens. Chris, many thanks today. Take care and we'll keep in touch. Thank you for today's interview. <coughs>